0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is episode 1437 of the Survival Podcast. It is September 30th, 2014, and that means Tick Frickin' talk. Tomorrow will be October the 1st. This is when kids actually start to count down the days to Christmas. I know the conventional thing that we did when we were kids, you make like a chain or something and you have a December 1st. But kids start really kind of paying attention around now. And when they really start paying attention to stuff, they get all jacked up on candy on Halloween. After that's over, and they're headed into the holiday season, they get really excited. I don't know that that's a great thing because all the materialism that goes with it and everything like that. But it should start kind of hit you in the gut right now. How quick this year's gone. There's a lot to be done, folks. You're either working toward liberty and sustainability in your life, or Well, the world's working against you. It's a sliding scale. You do not get to remain static. If you're not moving forward, then everything's moving away from you, and effectively you're moving backward. Just a wake-up call as we round out another month here at the Survival Podcast. Today's show is going to be a good one. This is going to be what I call a show for new listeners that also hits you, the experienced prepper, in the forehead with a 2 by 4 of reality. Yes, this is going to be called Assessing Readiness to real-world scenarios, and I think this is such an outstanding show for brand-new listeners that may not want to listen to all of the stuff in the beginning, like the first 10 minutes or so, that I will today, in the show notes, once I know what the number is, say, if you want to recommend this to a new person, and you want to say, hey, if you want to skip all the commercial stuff, jump to whatever. I can't tell you on the air right now because I don't know yet because I just started. I will try to make today's housekeeping kind of brief, though. First of all, I do want to take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help say, take care of you. And just a real quick note, do you guys realize that almost, I'd say every sponsor we have has been with us for more than three years. In the days of internet microwave philosophy and, and, and sponsorships and marketing campaigns that come and go rapidly, when you're, when you're thinking about doing business in the preparedness world, the self-sufficiency world, the tactical world, the gardening world, I don't care what it is, please consider our sponsors first. Because they are so loyal to us and have been for so long. Sponsor of, the day, sponsor of the day number one today is Ready-Made Resources, a company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need for your prepping ready-made, ready-to-go at their website, readymaderesources.com. Check them out today from the practical to the tactical, from gardens to guns and everything in between. Ready-Made Resources has got what you need. Next up today, growing your own groceries, formerly known as Backyard Food Production. I actually like that name better because what Marjorie Wildcraft does with her DVD series is teach you how to turn your backyard into a food production machine. You can learn more at grocer- com. Backyard Food Production was easier to say, by the way. But if you use the link on my website, there's a special deal for all members of the TSP audience. And if you are a Member Support Brigade member, make sure you check for the discount code in the backside of your MSB account. On that note... Today and tomorrow are the last days of the current MSB sale where I am insane and out of my mind and I sell a wonderful product for like a huge discount. 30 bucks for your first year. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members to get the discounted price and it will end tomorrow at midnight central standard time because I live in the central standard time zone. So that's how my server configured for my own time zone. Imagine that uh you use the discount code fall14 f a l l 1 4 no capitals no spaces right fall14 is the discount code it will get your first year for 30 bucks you can join by mail and you can pay by check money order silver what have you just write the discount code on the form and we will make sure that you get uh the discount we'll accept the discount anyway if you're paying with silver uh, it's hard to fractionalize silver, so I just give you a couple extra months. By the way, silver's down to like 16 bucks. I'm not saying buy, buy, buy yet, but it might be time to look at buying some. But it's also a good time to spend some. Effectively, right now, um, you get the MSB for 16 bucks with an ounce of silver, and you get a couple extra months. Uh, that's a damn good deal. Make sure if you send me silver, you package it well, because yes, it does get stolen in the mail, especially when it's just shoved into an envelope. Post office employees are mad at me for saying this, but I'm telling you, it's the truth. We've seen it one too many times, and it's not just damaged stuff. We've seen uh, envelopes clearly sliced open with something like a knife or a razor blade and silver taken out of it. So putting it into of pieces of cardboard and taping the cardboard together has been the, the cheapest, easiest way to, to, to send it. A padded envelope is a great idea, too. If you would like to pay with Bitcoin and get the sale price, email me, jack at com, and I shall... Handle you manually because I don't want to set up a sale button just for Bitcoin. But if you'd like to pay with Bitcoin, I stand ready to honor the sale price with Bitcoin for you, Bitcoin fanatics. With that, let us now look at the year that was the episode uh, 1437. Alex Strug has put this together for us a drastic jump in wheat prices. The Prince of Music does the classics. On the Transylvanian Peasants Revolt. I have for you today a drastic jump in wheat prices. You can read the other two amazing segments at tspwiki.com. The Survival, Self-Sufficiency, Preparedness, and Individual Liberty Wiki that's run by our community. Alex Shrugged is the one that puts these all together for us. Here you go. A drastic jump in wheat prices. After two wet seasons, there's a scarcity of wheat in England. Prices have jumped 700% and will remain high through next year. Eventually, prices will drop, but they will jump again as vagaries of weather and bad crop decisions continue to torment the peasantry. Since the lord of the manor often has first call on the harvest, most of the nobles will be fine. but the lords that have been economically stressed are facing financial collapse. Many of these nobles will find their lands transferred to distant, richer relatives and their names struck from the rolls of nobility." My take by Alex Shrugged. It hasn't been mentioned for a while, but famine is part of life in every country. Sudden jump in wheat prices will no doubt cause the poor to seek out other foods, including eating bugs. Luckily, farming methods have been changing, so other crops are available in some areas, but farming is in transition. If you live in an area using old methods, your life is going to be a real struggle, that is, if you manage to live through the crisis at all. Um, I want to kind of put this in perspective right now for you. If I go to Google News right now, this second, and I'm doing it as I say this. Food shortages and click on news. These are headlines I'm reading right now. UN fears repeat of Somalia food shortage. How Ebola might cause food shortage in West Africa. Agricultural experts warn of food shortages in Puerto Rico. I'm just reading straight out of the news. Ebola outbreak prompts food shortages fears in Liberia. Now, I want to do something for you that seems counter to this. I'm going to type in crop yields. I didn't do this yet today, but I already know what the answer is going to be. U.S. global crop production sets new records in 2014. So... Yeah, there's quite a few on this. USDA projects record 2014 crop production due to a longer growing season and higher rains than usual, etc. Record global soybean wheat crops expected. So at the same time, we're having larger harvests than ever. We still have food shortages, some because of Ebola, but some for other reasons. The problem in our world today is not the total production of food. It's where the food's produced, how the food's produced, and how the food's distributed and to whom. Much like Alex Shrug's little lesson here for us about how the nobles, if they could not manage to maintain their lands, their land would get sucked up by a richer relative. And their names, think about this, their names would be stricken from the roles of nobility. Why? To be a noble was to be a landowner, and we have such an opportunity today with owning even small holdings of land for ourselves and and, and making them productive. And The way that we handle and mitigate global food shortages is to create a distributed food model where food is literally growing everywhere, and then people buy food more as a luxury or just things that they can't produce. The days that we're going to produce all the chocolate America eats in Nebraska is probably never going to happen. And that's good. Because nations that can grow cocoa can profit from commerce with our country. There's nothing wrong with that. But we shouldn't be buying corn in Nebraska that's grown in, I don't know, India. just doesn't make any sense. You can grow all the corn in Nebraska you want. And maybe we should grow a little less corn and a little bit more of other things. And... This hit me, and I chose this one today because I want to give you guys a little suggestion here. I'm rereading a book called Sowing Seeds in the Desert by Makanusa Fukuora, uh, who really is the predecessor to people like Bill Mollison. was doing the things that, that Bill Mollison and Jeff Lawton and all the people in permaculture like myself talk about long before, and in some ways in very, in very much a simplified version. Like, the the beauty of what people like Mollison and Lawton have done and, and Holzer is taken an engineering approach and, and, and tweaked it to a higher level and done things at a higher level. But Fukuora did things in very, very simplistic, very inexpensive, and very effective methods. And I really recommend maybe you read that book. It has a lot to do with philosophy as well. And uh, kudos to Larry Korn, who's the guy that translated that book from Japanese. It's, It's actually a very interesting read, the first few pages, reading Larry's story of actually going to Japan, spending time out there on Fukuora's farm, and the challenges in translating a language like Japanese into English and the cultural differences. It's kind of cool. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I'm at about 10 minutes and I'm right at 11 minutes here. Uh, If you want to advise people to skip ahead, there'll be a few more seconds than that because of the intro music. But that's about where you'd be. 11 minutes, 11.30 for your new listeners that don't want to get history and learn about sponsors and all this other stuff. Because today we are going to talk about assessing your readiness, but we're also going to talk about it from a standpoint of why you should prep in the first place. See... Like I said at the beginning, this show is really a beginner show, but at the same time, it's a whack the experienced prepper in the head with a two-by-four of reality show, right? I mean, recently we started doing Monday prepper scenarios, and the entire point of that is trickling in the stuff that we're going to talk about today, you know, we're going to do a large overall view of I'm trying to trickle it into you a little at a time that's why I quit doing the uh, the conflicted card game scenarios which are the zombie apocalypse scenarios I think those are I think it's a cool game we still play it at home but in the end I'm really a lot more concerned about people being prepared for the things that are likely to happen the truth is many people that fancy themselves preppers are not actually prepping, prepping, prepping for the most likely disasters and emergencies that they're gonna face. Additionally, many people won't prep at all because they consider prepping the realm of the mentally defunct on shows like Doomsday Preppers. And if you're a new person to the show and somebody shared this with you and you think of Doomsday Preppers when you hear prepping or survival, I want you to just, I want you to take that and put it on the shelf. Just for the next hour. As you listen to this show. Just take it and go. That's nice. People really are that crazy. And they're really out of their minds. And the things they're preparing for. Probably will never happen. But I'm going to be open minded. And I'm going to take my preconceptions. About that type of thing. And go. This man just told me. That does not apply to what I'm about to hear. So I'm going to put it on the shelf. And let go. It's a very difficult thing. In modern society to do that. Because we're so mentally programmed by media. But if you're going to take responsibility for yourself, you have to pull yourself out of that programming. And so that's my request is simply that you just realize that ain't what we're talking about. But the problem is that many people are in the prepping and, and survival minded world and they do come to it because they become entrenched in a state of fear over these potentially earth shattering disasters. Uh, an electromagnetic pulse from the sun that hits the perfect window of opportunity and knocks out the electrical grid. Not that it can't happen. Probably not going to, though. Okay, But that's what they're preparing for, all electronics, to never work again. Ever. Like the TV show Revolution, which is a bunch of crap, by the way. It just, it just doesn't work that way. That's just not how things function. Or they hear about how screwed up the economy is. And without a full, complete understanding of economics... The numbers just are so overwhelming, they think, oh, it's got to end soon. I mean, we got to have the, epo- the economic apocalypse looks like, well, the next month or two. got to get ready for this. People are going to be killing each other in the streets. And again, it's not that we can't have a full economic meltdown. We can. Uh, but it probably won't look anything like the scenarios in people's minds. And even that isn't that likely in the way that it's portrayed. So we have preppers that come to prepping from that place. And they start prepping on fear, and they start prepping for the extreme. And we have a huge number of Americans that are doing what I consider being completely irresponsible as adults by taking no steps to mitigate the potential disasters they are likely to experience. Let's look at it this way. I've been doing this show for six and a half years, roughly, since June 2008. Here are some things that I've seen affect large numbers of people in the United States of America. I know we have international listeners, but the majority are U.S. citizens, and there's a problem with U.S. citizens' mentality. When they see something happen in China, like an earthquake, they go, I'm glad that didn't ha- that doesn't happen here. Uh, turn your TV on once in a while and check out California. Right? It might be worse what you saw happen over there, but we have earthquakes. We have floods. We have fires. So here's what I've seen happen just in America and affect more than one or two people during each occurrence. Ice storms, hurricanes, flooding, blizzards, water contamination, riots in cities, tornadoes, a massive recession. In that recession was a massive crash of the stock market and a massive crash of the real estate market. I've seen all of those things happen in just six and a half years. And I've seen others, you know, over my 40-odd years of being on the earth, I've seen these things happen many, many times. And the thing is that most people get through them okay, so they go, eh, It can't be that bad. But I'm telling you, I saw ice storms in in very recent history that had people without access to anything and without power for three weeks. If you don't have enough reserve heating capacity for that three weeks in that situation, you can freeze to death. And you're certainly not going to be happy and comfortable. And I want you to understand that a lot of what I want to talk to you about today isn't just surviving it's actually being reasonably comfortable and being able to take care of your family and not being dependent on others when bad things happen. So, but let's talk about some things that have not happened in my entire adult life and I don't think anybody here has ever seen. I have not seen a global pandemic killing 50% of the population of planet Earth. I have not seen an EMP destroy all electronics on the planet. I have not watched all the oil, coal, and gas run out with no energy left for anybody. I have not seen a meteor or a comet strike the Earth. I have not seen the total and complete collapse of the economy, and I have not seen a zombie apocalypse. I'm serious, except for the zombie thing. I threw that in there for humor. And the zombie apocalypse, for the uninitiated, is a catch-all phrase. It's basically any type of thing happening, like the ones like, No, they don't really think zombies are coming, right? It's the catch-all phrase. If there's if a global catastrophe hits, it's like saying global catastrophe zombie apocalypse. So, so now you know. But sadly, many preppers are so worried about the things that have not happened, their preps are full of holes, and they're not prepared for what has happened and is likely to happen again. So what I want to go through with you guys today is the foundation of everything I teach with preparedness. It has, the, it, It's the start point for everything from homesteading and growing your own food and storing food, And having medical skills and having other skills and having backup power sources and everything else, it all comes from this core I'm going to cover today. But I want you to think about where you're weak in this if you consider yourself an experienced prepper. And if you're new to prepping, I want you to think about how much every single thing I'm going to tell you makes complete, rational, logical sense. You have six primary survival needs. It's really seven, but I combine two of them together as one because they're so interlinked. The first one is food. You have to eat or you will die. I always start with basic food preparedness and most people that come to the survival mindset that are kind of tactically oriented, ex-military like I am, whatever, they, they, they have this preponderance, like this is an excuse to buy new guns and ammo and I, I'm going to get to security I think it's very, very important. But I have been shot at exactly one time in my life. I didn't like it. There was no conventional war going around. But when somebody's shooting at you, it sucks. And I didn't like it. But I've had one time had to worry about having a bullet in my life. I have had to get up and eat at least a couple times a day, every day since I was a little bitty baby drinking out of a bottle. And so have you. So... Food hits us right where we have our greatest need to survive. These things I'm giving you first, these six tenants, these are the things, if you do not have them long enough, you die. So they're needs. Food is also a great comfort thing. And my assertion is there are so many preppers that are worried about having a year's supply of food, but they don't actually have a 30-day supply of the food they eat every day. I think 30 days of deep pantry storage with maybe a little bit of long-term food storage thrown in and a few flexible things, things that you maybe don't use a lot but over the long haul could be useful. Like canned chicken is a great one, canned beef. And if you do your own canning and all, that's great. But I'm just saying there's things like that can be that can be adjunctive. But if you have 30 days of food in reserves, it will cover every disaster we talked about today. We have not had a disaster where people can at least get somewhere within a month in the United States of America in any case in modern history. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm saying 99% of the time, if you can feed your family for 30 days, you're going to be just fine getting through it. And there's a funny thing about food. When you have it, figuring out exactly how to ration a little bit, extend it if you need to, Or how to get more food becomes dramatically easy because you can think and you don't panic and you don't worry about your kids going hungry. When you are almost out of food, the absolute opposite happens. And many times people that don't need to panic, panic because of the potential that they realize that they're in. That 30 days is the perfect assurance plan. Notice I didn't say insurance, assurance. It's an assurance that for a month, no matter what happens, you'll be able to put food on the table. There's an old cliche i got to keep food on the table and a roof overhead. There's a reason it's a cliche, because it's true. It's one of the greatest burdens that heads of households feel that they have. Every father looks at their kids and thinks on, an, on a routine basis, it is important that I make sure these kids are clothed and that they're fed and that they have a place to stay. And a father that doesn't think that way is not really being a father. 30 days is also easy. It's so simple to save up 30 days' worth of food. But all you really need to do, this is the simplest way I know to get people on the right path with this. Get an old notebook or some paper out of the printer or whatever and put it on your countertop in your kitchen. Every time you eat something or cook something and use something in a meal, write it down on the piece of paper. Basically like a grocery list. But it's a grocery list not of what you want but what you're using. Every time one of those items you look at will store on a shelf for close to a year or more without refrigeration, put a star next to it, okay? Those items are where you start because they store easy. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything different than you normally do. When you go to the store and you're going to buy one, buy two. That's all. Next week when you're going to buy one, buy two. Keep doing it till you have six, 12 of that item. And do this with a couple items at a time. And once those items are fully stocked, just go into replacement mode with them. Okay? Go pick another item or two. Your pantry will get built out in four to six months like you won't believe. But I don't have a big pantry, Jack. I don't have room for all that food. Go get yourself a couple cheap Rubbermaid tubs. And store the food in tubs and put the tubs under beds. Put them in closets. Do whatever. Just keep an inventory of them. And keep some dates on them. So as you need new food, you're pulling from your old and stocking with the new. So you keep them rotated. It, you'll never waste anything. You'll never buy a damn thing you weren't going to buy anyway. And when something you're looking to stock up on goes on sale, buy the shit out of it. When you get a coupon for it, buy the shit out of it. You'll actually save money. You're, you're doing what's called a dollar cost average and really a CapEx deferral. Food generally goes up in price. So by buying it now, eventually you're going to pay more to resupply later, but you're actually working off the capital you have today, uh, actually working off the capital you have today in tomorrow's world. So in the long run, it actually works. This is how Southwest Airlines makes money when other airlines lose money because they do it with gasoline. If they can do it, you can do it. It's very simple. And 30 days will get you where you need to go. To add to the bulk a little bit and keep the cost down, Even if you're a person like me that doesn't eat a lot of pasta and and things like that, um, a bunch of pasta, different varieties, different types, a bunch of, a, a good, you know, quantity of rice, and then instant foods. I don't eat stuff like that, you know, the boxes that are just mixable and all. If you do, make them part of your storage. I don't like that as a dietary staple. But a little bit of it here and there is fine. We can't live our lives as purest nutritionally or we'll just be bored and miserable. But you you can put together um, a week's worth of meals in that type of packaging and put that all off to one spot if you're like me and you don't really eat it on a daily basis. And once in a while pull from it and you take a week's worth of that prepackaged food And you use it over a year. And it easily stores a year. I don't care what the expiration date is. That food stores a year, no problem. And you replace it as you go. There's always a week or two of it sitting there. You're not, even if you're a person, like I try to be very natural, very paleo. Every once in a while, you're just tired. You're just tired. You don't feel like working really hard. Look, I got a pound of frozen shrimp in the freezer. And I got a a box of Tony Satchery's uh, gumbo mix. Done. Maybe I a little piece of sausage, cut that up, throw that in there. It's not the best thing in the world for you, but it ain't going to hurt you once in a while. And eating it for a week when you're without access to food, no problem at all. better than not having nothing to eat. And it's so simple. And again, you'll never spend money you weren't going to spend anyway. You'll never buy something you probably weren't going to buy anyway. You don't have to do anything different. And now your family has 30 days of food assurance. You haven't ordered anything off the Glenn Beck show. You haven't had cases of stuff delivered to your house. You haven't you know, alienated your spouse. You just make sure your family has food to eat. Kind of what responsible adults do. Next is water. Water is the easiest and most overlooked thing. This is my primary method for initial storage of water. Find someone, if you don't drink sodas, iced teas and stuff like that, to save bottles for you. Clean them out. If it makes you feel better, put a couple drops of bleach in them. Fill them halfway with water. Shake them up and dump it out. Don't need to. But if it makes you feel better, go ahead and do it. Fill it up with water. Find a place to store your water. Store water that way. My father-in-law drinks Arizona iced tea in these very thick, very heavy-duty one-gallon jugs. He goes through about two gallons of this crap a week. We've got to the point now where like, we don't need any more. We have a couple hundred gallons of water stored up in these things. We use them routinely to keep them rotating. We keep a bunch on the floor in our pantry. We filter our water through a Berkey just because it tastes better and it's a good practice anyway, especially since we're on rural well water. And we then are constantly rotating our water supply. And every once in a while, we'll have a big event and we'll use a lot of the water and then we'll replenish it all with filtered water. So we don't have to do anything different. We don't have to spend any money. All we have to do is find space for the water. Long-term, you do need to think bigger. And the, the more you're dependent on water with irrigation needs and things like that. So I have a 1,500-gallon poly rain catch tank. I also have a 25,000-gallon pool. You can't drink pool water. You can if you purify it. So those are two major sources of water. If I didn't have that, I'd probably go out and get, you know, six 50-gallon uh, water drums and fill them up and keep that. And, you know, like, okay, here's a real simple way. You can keep water like that. So six or 300 gallons of water constantly refreshed. You want how to do it? Easy. Assuming you water the lawn, wash your car, do things like that with a hose. You take you take your six uh, barrels of water. You stack them alongside your house or your wall or wherever you have access to your hose bib. You plumb them all together. You put a, a hose bib out one end and a connection line in the other end. And then when you turn your water on, it pressurizes the barrels and it pushes the water out the end through the hose. You use your hose and do, it all, do what you normally would do. When you turn the water off, you're constantly moving water through the barrels. Even a couple of barrels like that would be a, a good reserve of water. It's really simple to do. It's not expensive, but it is an extra step. So just start with bottles. Another way you can store extra water and get like what we call function stacking out of it. Take those 2 liter soda bottles, clean them out, fill them up with water. If you have freezer space that's not being used, freeze them. When the power goes out, they'll act as a basically a, a an ice battery and keep everything cooler longer in your freezer. So you have less or it's more thermal mass, okay? But once they they do, you know, once they thaw out, you do have water there. We keep probably Five, six gallons of frozen water in our chest freezer. As thermal batteries, right? As ice batteries, but it's also another source of water. Again, I don't do anything differently. Very few people have their freezers completely stocked. By the way, by doing this, not only do you have an extra supply of water, not only has your freezer got more longevity and a power outage and need less backup power if you're going to run it off backup power, not only is all that true, it is more efficient... Day-to-day, and you'll have a lower electric bill if you keep it full by using the water as to take up the bulk space. Bet you didn't know that. I bet some of you didn't know that. Anyway, next one is energy. There's only so much you can do with energy, so do what you can. We have some great shows with my guest, Stephen Harris, where he talks about running your whole house off an 800-watt inverter that you can buy for less than 100 bucks on Amazon.com, some extension cords, and your car. Now, you really can't run your whole house, but you can run an awful lot very, very simply. I think that's one of the best first steps. The next thing is, actually, that's, that's, a, great, that's a great middle step, I would say. It, it's almost the first one because it's so simple. Go to Amazon, buy an inverter, be done with it. That's how simple it is, okay? And then listen to the shows and learn how to use it. Because it won't do everything, and it certainly won't do everything at all times, but it's incredibly flexible. But the first step really is to put together what I call a blackout kit. Not a bug out kit, a blackout kit. This is just simply a bin or a tub or whatever where you keep the primary stuff you need initially when the lights go out. So you're talking candles, batteries, flashlight, a radio that runs off batteries, all that stuff. Now I have like rechargeable batteries and everything all as part of my main battery bank in my closet right here. And that battery bank, by the way, would run all my equipment to do my show for a couple days if I needed it to. So it's it, that's like another step up. But just get all that stuff into one place. The other thing I really recommend you do is go out to Home Depot, Lowe's, the supermarket, sell them. They make these emergency lights that plug into a wall outlet like a flashlight, but if the power goes off, the lights come on like a nightlight. They, the ones we have, actually, you can take them out like a little handheld flashlight. We use them all the time. and They're LEDs. But the big reason for those is so when the lights go out, and you were just stepping out of the bathtub and you're naked, and your kids in his, in his room getting ready to go to bed freaked out and scared, and your wife's downstairs just you know, changing the stuff from the laundry room, and nobody can see Jack Diddley crap. Everybody's busting their feet, and kids are crying. There's light, so you can see what you're doing. It's the most inexpensive, simple way that I know of to make... You don't need a lot of light. You really don't. That little bit gives you what you need to be able to move toward all your other equipment. So a blackout kit in that. A battery bank, I think, pays huge dividends, but I would get a generator first. And depending on where you live and what conditions you're going to deal with, I would either do it with something like a really high quality 2000 watt Honda generator, about a thousand bucks. And the first time you have to use it, it will be worth every penny. Or you might spend less and get a bigger generator, general purpose, you know, five to seven K generator. I have a a Troy built uh, 6500 watt uh, continuous operating generator. It's probably the prep I've used the most. And I really recommend you look at higher wattage generators if you live in the south. You're probably not going to do a lot of heating with electric heat and a generator. But keeping a room cool is really, really important. What our protocol is, is we have two window units upstairs in our house, because our upstairs rooms get hot, but they're the freestanding ones, where you can open a window, and you like insert this little piece, and there's a tube that comes to them, and they can move around the room. We have two of those, and our house is way too big to try to run the whole house air conditioner, so we take a room or two. My office, our bedroom, is, is, is what we normally do. We can run those two air conditioners, no problem off that generator, and quite a bit more we could also charge up our battery bank so i can run my computers and equipment so i could cool the room down okay this is just how my operational scheme works you think about it for yourself but i could turn, put that air conditioner in here run the heck out of it cool this room down and of course it's going ba and the generator's outside going ba so i got the noise from the air conditioner noise from it. i could get it nice and cool i could switch over to my battery bank i could knock out a show in an hour Make it a short one for the day, still get my business accomplished, be a little sweaty at the end, turn it back on. That's the kind of flexibility you're looking at there. So with security, too, do you want to run the generator all night when there's you know some, some stealing and looting going on, which always seems to happen? right? Or do you want to be able to run silent at night and go ahead and use the, air, the generator in the day? So it makes sense to the generator, build a simple closet uh, rack system of batteries. I have a simple battery bank, a couple 800-watt inverters on it, some lights, battery chargers, four marine batteries. It's a great system. cost me less than 150 bucks to build, including the rack that everything's sitting on. Really simple. Stephen Harris has a whole bunch of stuff on how to do this, but the truth is you can figure out how to do that pretty dead gone easy, the, 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 the closet one. I also have a battery bank in my truck. So my truck has two GC2 golf cart batteries in it, A 3500 watt inverter and a backup 800 watt inverter, lights, extension cords, whatever. So I have power everywhere. And I do that because it's so valuable. And it's valuable to you for comfort and for needs. And a lot of times, if you work from home, being able to continue to, to, to do your business. And so we have to think that way. The next one is security. Security is not gear. It's one that's one type of security. So I've got a gun, I've got security. Well, you know, just because someone was doing something you didn't like during a disaster doesn't mean you can shoot him and go, hey, there was a disaster going on. I had to shoot him. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. Um the best security is to have the gun and never need it. And that's done mostly with protocol and procedure. This may be the most important thing I tell you today in regards to saving your life or saving you from Uh, a serious incident uh, to do with violence and someone harming you. And let me just say to those that are new to the show and new to this concept that think, well, no one would want to hurt me, you're wrong. You are so wrong that I can't even begin to tell you how wrong you are. It actually shocks me that anybody feels that way or nothing bad would ever happen where I live. The only thing preventing something happening to you or something happening bad where you live is circumstance. And sooner or later, the odds are that people generally run across someone that would do them harm. And often you never know and they never do because the situation wasn't right for them to get away with it. Okay. And that means we can use that to our advantage with procedures and protocols. So procedure is what we do every day. So procedure would be. When I go to the gas station and I'm filling up with gasoline, I leave my wallet in the car. I take my debit card or credit card, if you use credit cards, I don't happen to, out of my wallet, leave my wallet in the car. I get out with just my card. I pay at the pump. I put my card in my front pocket. I do not have my earbuds in. I do not have my stereo running in my car. And I pay attention to what the hell's going around me while I'm pumping gas. Because let me tell you something, guys. While you're fumbling with your freaking wallet, trying to get it back in your pocket, and fumbling with the pump in the other hand, that's a great time to be jacked. Well, it never happens where bull. It just hasn't. It always could, and especially when you're traveling, you don't really know where you are. You don't know if an area is a good area just because it seems like a good area. Oh, there's people around. I've got videos that I've watched of people being shot or stabbed in front of other people, and the people walking by like nothing happened. So, you can't ever assume that. So, that's a procedure. A protocol is what we do when a situation occurs that elevates things to a higher level. So, one of the things is the kids can play outside. As long as CPS isn't around or nosy neighbors aren't around, kids can just play outside whenever they want to. That's procedure. That's day to day. And procedures are things like we don't talk to strangers. We don't go somewhere beyond this without telling mom. We always check in. These are procedures. There's a disaster and things are going kind of wonky outside. We're starting to get things back to normal, but there's been some thefts and stuff in the area. Just letting the kids go out and play without supervision. At that point, we're instituting a new protocol. You have to, you have to ask in advance more than you normally would. You have to stay within eyesight. Can't go out alone. There has to be at least two or three together, things like that. Right? A procedure is we lock all the doors at night when we go to bed. We should keep them locked pretty much all the time, but definitely when we go to bed, we make sure everything's locked up, right? So people can't get in the house. A protocol is when somebody's trying to gain entry into the house, what do we do? And the first thing we want to do is make sure we can get everybody in the home somewhere into a safe area and pull up there. And if we're going to involve deadly force because we feel it's necessary, let them come to you. if If it's a mistake, if it's some drunk guy in the wrong house, it gives you more of a chance to figure it out. It gives him more of a chance to figure it out. You're less likely to end up being shot if the person is a legitimate threat to you. If police respond because a cop saw the guy go over your fence, it's less likely you end up in some kind of weird cross. It's better every which way that it can be, even if you have a gun.
1: I'll go
0: shoot him. You could get shot. You're leaving your family unprotected. You could be shooting someone that just is drunk and made a mistake. And I know you're thinking, well, they shouldn't break in my house. Yeah, but you're not going to feel good about killing someone that was just drunk and crawled in the wrong window. And it's happened. It's happened. It's tragic. You can't really blame the homeowner for that. It's scary as shit to have somebody come through your window at 2 o'clock in the morning. But nobody feels good about it when it's all over. So that's a procedure and then a protocol to initiate Right, So when certain things go wrong, security has to go to a higher level. So just having guns or just having an alarm or having a dog, all of these things are useful. But you actually have to think about the different things that could go wrong and how would we best get through that with no loss of life. Or if it has become a loss of life, it's not me and mine. And that's what security is really about, situational awareness, Many years ago, my wife and I were living near Allentown, Pennsylvania. We'd never really been to downtown Allentown. I hadn't been there since I was a kid. Things have gone way south in parts of that town. You can just tell it's not a good place to be anymore. There's gang activity, etc. We were looking for parts for a vacuum cleaner. We thought we knew where the store was. We parallel parked the truck. We got out of the 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 truck. We're walking down the road. I realized it's like three blocks. I'm not going to drive my truck for three blocks. We go walking down. I'm wearing my wedding ring. I'm wearing a very nice watch. My wife's wearing her rings. We're dressed nicely. We pass a group of, and I don't mean anything negative by this, but a group of Hispanic males. They look like they were no threat to us at all. One of them looked at me, looked straight at my watch, looked at my wife, looked back at me, made eye contact with me, and the, 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 the feeling was, dude, really? It wasn't, I'm a threat to you. It was, I think you're stupid for be- for-, for being here this way. And just like walking that far and being wide open like this. And I spun my wife on her little happy heels around. And we got in the truck. We drove three blocks. We went straight in the store. I did not go. But you pay attention to shit like that. And my wife thought I was so overreacting. And over the years, as she started to pay more and more attention and read more and more stories about more and more people victimized, she gets it. She understands that. So security is about situational awareness, protocol, and procedure. You have to think about how they fit into your own lives. Again, I have every one of these subjects I have multiple shows on if you want to know more about it. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com go to the search box, put in food storage, put in energy, put in batteries. Whatever you want to learn more about, go there. I'm trying to give you a high-level view of it today. The next one is shelter. So i got a house. Well, not if the roof's ripped off, of it by a tornado. So we have to think about, one, how do we make sure we don't lose our shelter? And part of that is proper economic planning, by the way. But we also have to think about, well, if I did have a hole in my roof, having tarps around and knowing how to at least temporarily patch the hole would be a good idea. Instead of going to the store when everybody else is going to the store in the middle of a blackout to try to buy a tarp while everybody else is buying tarps and food and everything else that they think they need while rain is pouring into my home. All right? So we do want to think about if there's damage to the house and it's not sufficient that I have to leave, but how do I mitigate it from becoming worse and how do I keep the place livable? Part of that, it starts; these start to blend together. So the energy thing, again, if you live in the south and it's routinely over 100 degrees, I'm sorry, the way houses are built now, you need air conditioning. Yeah, they had old plantation-style housing and stuff, and they were higher, and they were built differently, and you could open windows. And the way houses have been built for the last 100 years, it just doesn't work. It is actually a health risk in many houses to be without air conditioning in climates with 100-plus degree days, especially with high humidity, especially for elderly and children. If you have a baby, if you have a baby and you live with high temperatures – and you don't have a generator and a window unit air conditioner, you're literally risking that child's health if you end up in a long-term outage. That won't happen that long. Hurricane Sandy, I mean, come on. This is not stuff that doesn't happen. It just hasn't happened to you yet, maybe. If your home becomes unlivable for whatever reason, fire, flood, hurricane, mandatory evacuation order, Um, Your house isn't damaged yet, but they're telling you to get out. Well, you have to have shelter when you go somewhere. I'll go to a hotel. Depends how long can you afford to be in a hotel unless the insurance is picking it up, which it not necessarily always is going to. How far can you go and still work, if work's still available, depending on what type of disaster we're talking about and how regional or local it is in nature, And then the next thing is, if it's a big regional disaster, how many hotels will be booked solid before you figured out to book a hotel room? So if that's your plan, and it is one of our contingencies, we have several hotels in our phones that we have pre-existing relationships with where we can pull them up like you would call your brother and instantly book a room. So that if we ever got into a situation, mandatory evacuation, and it's a two-mile radius due to a chemical spill, Never happens. Absolutely happens, right? That we could be as close as possible and outside. So we have different varying distances and different areas that we have. So is that paranoia or is that simple? That's simple like, okay, since we've used these hotels, you know, not everybody's going to have this, but some of the hotels we keep are because we've used them for group rates for our classes here. So we have, we know the, the, the general manager. But some are a little further out. You just look them up and make a contact in your phone. How long does that take? Many people say, well, I would go stay with my brother or my sister-in-law or whatever. That's fine, especially if you have a pre-agreement on that. Like if something happens, you come to me, and if something happens, I come to you. You might want to think about what are you taking with you? How are you going to – I mean, most houses are not set up for the population to double very well and everybody be comfortable and happy for very long. So the more you can be self-sufficient when you get there, the better of a house guest you are. And I believe it was Benjamin Franklin that said, house guests are like fish. After three days, they start to stink. right? So you don't want to be that person, and you don't want to be uncomfortable, and you don't want to be a burden. So even maybe having a few things already there, and if you do make this agreement with a friend or a family member, them having a few things with you is a great idea. This is simple. Again, it doesn't cost much. It doesn't take much time. It's not paranoia. It's a simple thought process. And then you have to try to balance, too. Like, who do you know how far away? How far away is far enough away? In a tornado, a mile is, unless you're in the same line, the lucky, unluckiest day at all, is probably more than enough. There's not many tornadoes more than a mile wide. Right? And even a lot of times, unless you get like a super tornado, what you get is like a touchdown, a pickup, a touchdown, a pickup. You got houses completely wiped. I've seen this right here in Dallas. Ten houses in a row completely wiped to the foundation. The next house has the roof pulled off it. The next house isn't touched. The next house has a two by four stuck in the roof from one of the other houses. The next house is flat. And the two houses across the street, nothing happened to them. And then a house right next to that house, it didn't get torn apart, but the windows blew out of it. You just don't know. right? So you have to think about a balance of being far enough away that you're probably not hit and impacted by the same disaster, but yet close enough that if work's available, etc., school, you can still get your kids to school, go to work, etc. Because you want to try to continue on with your life. But all of that revolves around shelter. We take for granted that which is just there every day. We take for granted the water flows. It, it's amazing. Like We had a power outage in Arkansas, and it was before we were living there for a, for a year. We were, had it as a kind of a backup place, and it was right when we first got it. So we didn't even have any of our real preps there yet. We were just like, it's going to be a great place to, as, a, as a secondary location. But, I mean, we had owned it for like, actually, we had let, rented it to my niece, and they had just left. We finally had it back to ourselves, and we were retooling everything. So we didn't have the generator there. And the power went out, and the well didn't work. We did have plenty of water. It wasn't a big deal. We had a couple thousand gallons of water stored. That was so easy, we just did it. But I can't tell you how many times you'd walk over to the sink and turn the... Damn it, I forgot. Right? Or you... How many people have ever been where you have the power out, but it's daylight out, and you walk into a room that's a little bit dark, and you flip the switch? You're like, oh, yeah. We take for granted that which just works every day. We definitely take our shelter for granted. Um, some people say my plan is I have a really great camping set, tents and all like that. It's better than nothing. It's better than nothing, but if you camp a lot, if you're equipped for it, if you're set up for it, and it would be, you know, I could live like this for a week, and we could go to the National Forest and buy camping location, and there's electric and water there, and pff, fine. Fine. If you buy all that shit, pack it all up in a little trailer or box or something and think, when it happens, I'm going to go do it. (laughs) It's the same as the people that buy a bunch of seeds and say, when the wind of the world comes, I'm going to plant a garden and have never gardened in their life. It just doesn't work. The first time a family goes camping together, especially when none of them have a background in camping, my suggestion, my suggestion is that you make sure there's a hotel room nearby that can save the vacation. Because probably about a day and a half into it, everybody's going to be ready to kill each other. Just pack all the shit up, shove it in the back of the truck, and go stay at a hotel, try it again next time. You're never supposed to quit, Jack. Don't you know that? I I love what our most recent guest said when I asked him that question. He said, I'm completely in favor of quitting things that are making me miserable. Ruining a family vacation because you weren't ready for it, Is not worth doing. But my point there really is until you practice these skills and practice living this way, you're probably going to have a lot of trouble with it. That's why I love things like Boy Scouts and all. You've got people that help each other, been through it before, etc. And I think it's great for your kids. But shelter, definitely think a little bit beyond, oh, I have a house. The next one is health and sanitation. It's another place where it's amazing what we take for granted. Uh, The fact that most people wake up every day go about their daily lives, throw stuff into this can thing, tie up the bag, maybe set it outside another garbage can or in the garage for a couple days, and then on Thursday or whatever day is your trash day, walk out to the curb, lay the bags on the ground, and they go away. We take that for granted. Um, if there's an ice storm and you can't go to the store, the garbage trucks aren't coming to you. And if it's a couple weeks of that, when service is restored, It might be a long time before they catch up because they're only human and they only have so many trucks and everybody's going to be in your situation with a big pile of shit to get rid of. So just thinking about what you would do with your garbage. See, this is why I love composting. Even if you don't have a guard, just spread the crap in your lawn. Your lawn will be healthier. So then you have a system, a procedure that's already in place okay, to deal with food waste. So since you have that, It never becomes an issue. See, the the more you are organized with your procedures, the less time you have to implement protocols. See how simple that really is. The more I'm prepared with daily procedures, the less protocols I need. Or the less less likely I am to need to institute a protocol. Because I'm already dealing with things as though... I didn't have the situation where the health, the support was there. Sanitation's huge, and I re- and this is what I said: where there's really seven of these, but I interlock health and sanitation together because they're so intertwined, you really can't pull them apart. Most people in natural disasters that die do not die from the disaster itself; they die in the aftermath of health problems, and the health problems are almost always a direct cause by poor sanitation. More people in Haiti during the Haitian earthquake died from diarrhea than died from buildings falling on top of them because the water became contaminated, they didn't have a way to purify it, and if you give a thirsty person on the verge of of dehydration the choice between drinking contaminated water or dehydrating and dying, they'll drink the contaminated water every single time. Sooner or later, the human impulse will take over. And I'm going to die anyway if I don't drink this, so I'm going to do the best I can with what I have and drink it. I'll filter it through a sock or something, which does almost nothing. Might make it worse, depending on where the sock's been. But that's a fundamental reality. So we have to think about how I would keep things clean. Well, you know, I have water so I can flush the toilets. There's been disasters where the toilets won't flush. You want a simple way to take care of this? You won't like it, but it'll work. Go get a couple bottles of the blue stuff that you put in like an RV toilet or a porta potty. Get a five-gallon bucket, a bunch of heavy-duty garbage sacks, and a toilet seat. Sucks. Keep it out in the back of the yard. When the garbage people start coming around again, they got some nasty stuff to pick up. Double bag it, but it works. Could you go straight on and build a composting toilet in your backyard? Sure, if you want to. Some people do, some people don't. But this is a simple thing. This is cheap. This is quick. This is easy. This is effective. Having a good first aid kit and think about putting things in a first aid kit that we normally don't think of. One of the things I talked about recently was CarMex. If you're stuck somewhere and you got chapped lips and you can't run down the store and pick some up, it's a miserable, miserable experience. And let me tell you what's even more miserable you're doing everything you can to keep things going, and your six year old has really chapped, painful lips and she's crying. You want to mitigate stress in these situations every way that you can. Uh, like I said, two of the big things I think it missed are some kind of a lip balm, Carmex is my favorite, and diaper rash ointment. When you get wet, dirty, you're not as able to take as many showers as you normally would like to, you're having to do things you normally wouldn't, clothing's rubbing on you, Right? That is what, that's, you know, that's the main cause of diaper rash. I guess there's, I'm not a doctor, I don't know. There could be other reasons kids break out with diaper rash, but to me the big thing is they got a diaper rubbing on the inside of the leg or across the private parts or whatever, and they get a rash. All, all diaper ointment is is zinc oxide. And it is one of the best anti inflammatories and, and, and that type of friction irritation relief you can get your hands on. Those two things can mitigate a lot of problems properly used. Uh, things like dry skin as well. I've, I've, you know, like A lot of times when you end up without climate control and dry climates or whatever, you get cracked fingers and stuff like that. Carmex actually works really good for that. Dried elbows, etc. And it seems minor. Cracked toes, cracked heels, whatever. But your skin is your largest organ. And it does a lot of things, but one of its main things is it's one of the chief components to your immune system. It keeps things that you want out of your body, out of your body. And every place there's a hole in it is a potential for the infiltration of things that causes infections. Very minor illnesses, very minor problems can become serious in a situation where you can't just run to the doctor. Where you can't just go get medication. To, to put it in perspective, I had a guy that does relief work to places through a small nonprofit he set up named Brandon Shelton on the show, and he said, What I want your listeners to understand is when we go to a place like Haiti after an earthquake like that, four dollars worth of diarrhea medicine can save a child 's life America." You are just as susceptible to dying from those types of illnesses as a person in Haiti is. You're both humans, you both bleed red, you're not blessed because of the color of your flag in a way that's going to keep you from dying when you're sick. Sanitation and health are huge, and it's also the case that most families have one or two adults that get everything really done, especially when kids are young. What happens when one of them's flat out on their back, sick or injured? You want to mitigate it as best you can. I got, I got hit with something this year. Um, we think it might have been salmonella from the ducks. I don't know if it was. It matched up. I was flat out for a week. I could barely think. I couldn't read. I couldn't read and take, I couldn't read more than a sentence and I got confused. I had some checks I had to write and I gave up after trying to write a few of them. I just signed them half ass and had my wife make them out. Now, to put that in perspective, I'm a guy, you hand me a book, and I look at a page. And I look at a page for about 10 seconds, and I've read the page like a picture. I don't have an identic memory. I can't tell you every word that was in there in what order or what have you, but I've taken it in. I know, I'm on to the next page. I'm not a speed reader, but I'm very, very quick, and I read in totality. I'm kind of reading the first and last sentence of the paragraph at the same time and then filling the middle in. That's, that's sort of how I read. I think that's actually a technique, but I kind of just, that's how I naturally read. I couldn't read, I was getting emails from people and just deleting them, going just, I, I can't, I can't focus. Now what if there's a disaster going on during that period of time? And I'm the one that knows how to do everything. I'm the one that can pull the generator and start it. You know, and I've spent more time on the on the pot than I am, you know, running the household oh and what if the toilets didn't flush fortunately we haven't weren't in that situation but i'm just saying right during an illness you got to think about all of this stuff because it does happen you don't have to let it consume your life but you have to at least acknowledge it and be prepared for it so a good understanding of first aid a good first aid kit good health and sanitation items and a plan to deal with your waste these are just basic things to do I, I want to get now into secondary needs. These are things you will not die without, but you, you might be miserable without it. Uh, or it might take you a lot longer to recover. The first one that almost no one in preparedness thinks of is money. You'll often hear have a few hundred dollars in cash or something like that in your bug out bag or whatever. But so many preppers are so convinced that the real disaster is going to be the collapse of the economy, the money won't be toilet paper anyway, uh, worth toilet paper anyway, you might as well have silver and gold. Um, money's not going anywhere for a long time. The value of it will continue to decline. There's a whole host of reasons to make things like precious metal part of your investing, part of your investing portfolio. I generally recommend 5 to 10% of your net worth in physical metals. Um, but I also look at many other ways of investing your money beyond, beyond stocks. Things like good quality tools and knowing how to use them would be one. Uh, having your home paid off early, not having debt, all types of things like that, actually work toward your investments uh, and equity in your life, not just in a retirement account. But in the end, money is what we pay the bills with. And so many people would be so much better off day-to-day just with better financial management. But in a disaster, it's critical. I do recommend that you have a significant amount of cash, a couple thousand bucks, if you can save it up, uh, available in cash at home. Uh, get a little strong box, firebox, safe, whatever, and don't put it all in one place. Break it up a little bit. And this is a thing that can be done a lot like grocery store shopping. One of the easy things you can do, go to the grocery store, pay with your debit card. When they ask if you want cash back, say yes. Get a $20 bill. Take it home. Put it away. Do it again next week. I know some people are financially strapped to where that's a hardship. Get 10 bucks. Get five. Do it every other week. I don't care. When you end up with a, a, a couple bills in your pocket that you don't really need, you know, I got 35 bucks on me. Take a five and a one, put it back in your pocket, put the rest away. Get a jar, do it. Just because most people that say they can't do that, they have no savings account either. You are so screwed. If anything, you are one paycheck away from being evicted from your home, if that's you. You've got to start somewhere but a cash reserve, because a lot of times when all this stuff goes wrong and you finally get to the store, guess what? Uh, our, our machines are down. We're only taking cash. Can I write you a check? No, dude, no way. Can't even check it. All the people that take checks now have automated systems that immediately hit your account, like a debit card, or at least verify that your check's good. Right. So they're not going to take a check in that situation unless they know you and unless they have enough control to say yes. There's plenty of times you know the store clerk. They know you're damn well good for the money, but if they don't have the authority to say yes, they can't. So that cash is is critical. But having financial reserves, saving money, not just in your, fi- your retirement account. I talked to one person recently, and I, they said, and this person made decent money, not huge money, but... You know, like a fifty thousand dollar a year job as this person, a young person getting started. You know, I, I'm saving for my retirement, but I'm afraid I'm, I'm, you know, not saving enough money outside of retirement. I said, well, how much money do you have in your savings account right now? And they said, well, uh, uh, under a thousand bucks. I said, yeah, you don't have enough. So what are you putting into retirement? Well, I'm doing what the guy said that came and met with us, ten percent. So okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to immediately cease your contributions to your retirement account, hundred percent of them. Just don't put any money in there. And then I want you to take a 10% and have it automatically put into your savings account. You might even want to open a separate savings account, so you, this is the one you don't touch at all. So you have savings as like a dip reserve that you just use, you know, when you need to. And you have a second savings account that is your true long-term savings is for disaster use only, emergency use only, uh, or the car needs new tires and I didn't plan for it and now I'm screwed, I'm going to have to put on a credit card and I'm going to backfill the savings That's for stuff like this. And then you have your checking account you do your day-to-day work with. And I want you to do that for at least 20 weeks. And he said, why 20 weeks? I said, because at the end of 20 weeks, you'll have two weeks of your pay put away. He went, wow, I never thought about it that way. I'm like, so do it for a year and you'll have five weeks. Then go back in your retirement account at 5% and keep doing 5% into your, into your emergency fund. Do that till you have 90 days and then go back to doing 10% to your emergency fund. Painless. And you're already putting the money away anyway. So just reallocate it. So you might need it. And and I honestly don't think that anybody should be doing 100% of their savings to retirement. I think if you could do 10%, and even if you have a 90-day fund, I'd still say more toward a 5-5 five, five split. You have no idea, especially when you're 30, and your retirement account's going to be about 59.5, 65, depending on the terms of it, you got another twenty five years you have no idea what you might need a significant sum of money for, like oh, I don't know losing a job, starting a business, uh deciding you want to improve your education and finding out that that government money you thought you could get won't come or won't work for what you want to do. there's so many reasons you might need some money, so it doesn't mean that that money's just there for partying but having it available for a disaster because one of the big things we need. Next, in our plan, is if there is a disaster, what is my path to recovery? And money is a big part of getting on that path to recovery. So if it's just I've missed work for a couple weeks, and the boss understands because I had to and I didn't get paid for a couple weeks, the path to recovery is I just dipped into the money to pay the bills that I didn't have the income for, and now I'm back on a path to recovery. But if it's there's a roof off the house... I need the insurance company to come out here and take care of it, but I'd like to get it temporarily fixed. I can pay for that if I can't do it myself. And there's a million times that that path to recovery requires a little bit of money. But we need to be thinking about the mindset that as soon as the acute portion of the disaster is over and as soon as we get all the plates spinning again and we have at least, okay, I've got the generator running, immediately we need to be thinking, okay, how do we come back from this? What is it going to cost us? How do we mitigate that? And how do we reinstitute our lives? And the fact that people don't think this way is why you had people two years after Hurricane Katrina going, they're going to throw me out of my FEMA trailer and I don't know what to do. And it's easy to mock those people. It's easy to laugh at them and say they're just lazy or whatever. But these are people that had everything that they had in their lives destroyed. And we get so narrow-minded and we get so... Easy to condescend and look down on people. We have no idea what that person went through. We have no idea if that person was maybe a very productive member of society and was so emotionally damaged by what happened that they can't recover. And it's because they didn't immediately get toward this thought of how do I get back to where I was or better as soon as possible. So, path to recovery is a secondary need, but it's very, very important. The next one's comfort. At the end of this period of time, you don't want to be in a knife fight with your family. Okay, and when families get locked in together and they haven't been, and they haven't thought about it in advance, tensions rise, tempers get short, arguments come up, fights from the past get rebrought you know brought back is I, I hate to say this, but it's it's usually the women of the family that play historian uh, with with past disagreements more than males. All of that stuff comes to a head, so thinking about ways that you can be comfort. And that falls right into the next one, which is morale, and the next one, which is entertainment. They all kind of come together. So, if the TV didn't work, how would your family entertain itself? I know a lot of people in this audience don't even watch TV anymore. Good for you. But for some, I mean, you have to understand that preparedness is not one size fits all. I have twelve tenants, and the last one is you have to design your plan for yourself based on your needs, your desires, and your wants. So, whatever it is that normally your family does for entertainment, whatever would not be available, how do you make up for it? People that feel generally entertained, decent morale, and reasonable comfort get through these situations a lot better than people that don't. And I want you to think again as parents. I think it's very much the case that a lot of our youth could do a little more toughening up, but the ice storm is not the time to really work on that because it's not going to help them. It's not going to teach them to persevere because first of all, they know it's temporary. And second of all, they're probably scared and upset and they're looking to you to help them. So if you want to work on perseverance and integrity and toughness and things like that, get your kid into a martial arts class, get them in the scouts, take them on wilderness trips, make that fun encourage them, challenge them. Don't just say, well, if that happens, then they'll tough it out. Because you're going to be miserable and they're going to be miserable. So you have to think about the entertainment, morale, and comfort factor. The next thing is you're going to need information. You're going to need information so you know what the hell's going on. So by having power, that's great. But things like a radio, a television. You can run a small television and a set of rabbit ears if you live where you can at least get uh, TV through an antenna, Off a battery backup box or small generator. So you can watch the news. Your phones, being able to keep your phones charged gives you access to information. Police scanners or scanner applications. I use one called Five O Pro on my iPhone that gives me access to law enforcement organizations and uh, civilian radio, state, you know, all kinds of stuff all over the place. I also use an app called Zello that keeps me in touch with the survival podcast community. Um, But it basically turns your, your, your phone into basically a radio that can use different networks. And these are great ways to stay in touch. And I'll tell you what, the Zello network for TSP has had people bailing each other out of minor disasters for as long as it's existed. And things like we've had females traveling long distances across the country by themselves. that are a little bit nervous to get another app and they turn it on and they can be tracked because they want to be tracked in this situation. And they're being tracked by people on the Zello network uh, all the way through. They're checking in with those people all the way through. And they know that if something goes wrong, there are people there to help them. Communications and information are key. That's what this community is about. I never said set that up. This community has formed these types of things. Those of you that are new to prepping, this is the people that are really doing this stuff. They're not the delusional nutjobs on Doomsday Preppers. There's people in this audience when that show first started before we figured out how ridiculous it was going to be. I knew. I wouldn't have anything to do with it. But there are people that wanted to be on that show that are down-to-earth, solid preppers that could really help people by showing them what they do and they were told by the producers of the show, you're not extreme enough. Right? That show's about extremism and, and, and basically making, using delusional people for entertainment or making the same look delusional for entertainment, one or the other. So... Understand that this type of stuff is just common sense. Access to information, entertainment, morale, comfort, thinking about a path to recovery, and some financial reserves. And the biggest thing that all of this does and all of it pulls together for you is some sense of normalcy. Some sense of order. Some sense of it's all going to be okay in the end. See, in disasters, when, when things really go wrong is when people lose hope. And they lose hope when they lose a sense of normalcy. Now, normalcy can bite you the wrong way. There's something called normalcy bias. And that's like, you think of the old movie where grandma's in a rocking chair with the knitting and just, everything's fine, everything's so Grandma, there's a fire, it's coming, we got to go. If There's no fire, it's fine. And finally, I have to yank grandma out of the chair. She can't accept the house is going to burn down, and she's going to pretend it's not. It, usually, it's not that obvious, but normalcy bias is a real enemy. But normalcy is necessary for a person to function. And for a person to be able to deal with stressful situations, they need a sense of normalcy that they can center on. And without it, you've got real problems. Without normalcy, you get stress. And I could actually take something like a laboratory animal, like a lab rat, and and stress it, and stress it, and stress it. And make sure there's food and water for it, and stress it, and stress it. Stress it sooner or later, it'll either stop eating or drinking and either starve or dehydrate or have a heart attack. But sooner or later, just stress alone will kill it. Stress is the biggest killer in America today. Stress on top of all the nutritional problems and all, that's the real killer. I, for those that don't know the show, well, I lost a lot of weight after I left, left corporate America. A lot of it had to do with dietary changes. I went to a very paleo-ish lifestyle. And I quit eating any kind of fast food and very, very little processed food. Almost no uh, carbohydrates from, you know, simple carbohydrates, breads and and pastas, wheats, etc. And that helped. But the stress decline has done more for me than anything else. So when you have stress in a situation that's already stressful, all the things that you should be able to do, you can't think and you don't get them done. And a lot of times what you find out is people had a resource that would have saved their home or made things better. They didn't even think about it because they're stressed. That sense of normalcy that you get from comfort, morale, entertainment information allows you to pause and think. And just to show how things cross-pollinate here, just a little bit on wilderness survival. If I was teaching you basic wilderness survival in a wilderness environment, I would teach you the same primary needs. Food, water, Energy, I'd call it fire there, but it's just energy, security, shelter, and health and sanitation. That's what I would teach you. And I would also say the most common situation where a person needs to provide those things for themselves in the wilderness, unless they've chosen to go there and practice their skills, is being lost. Sure, there's injuries and things like that, but usually it's getting lost or simply getting further out than you thought you could, than you realized you were, and realizing, I'm not going to make it back by dark. And it's I'm safer just hauling up and staying here. But number one reason is lost. I got lost. The first thing I'll teach you: once you realize you're lost, don't do anything. Stop. Sit down. Breathe slowly. Tell yourself, this isn't that big a deal. Everything's gonna be okay. Calm down assess your situation and make a determination that even though I'm lost, since now I'm thinking, the sun sets in the west, it's past noon, that's west, that's east. I know damn well if I head east. As long as I can get a marker that I'm going to hit a road. And if you know that, and you know roughly how far it is, you self-rescue maybe. Or you say, you know what, I don't know where I am. And I accept that I don't know where I am, and if I keep moving around... All I'm going to do is get more lost. If somebody knows that I'm out here, somebody knows that I'm missing, somebody will come looking for me, I'm going to provide my needs, food, water, shelter, energy, security, health, and sanitation, okay? As best I can here, and I'm going to be as loud and noisy and obnoxious as I can in doing that so that I send out signals of where I am, and hopefully somebody will find me. And if I go too long with that, then I might have to choose a self-rescue anyway. If I can find a pathway, that's a perfect place to camp because sooner or later somebody's going to come by that way. And Well, I should just follow the path, not if you don't know where it goes. Maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. The thing is most paths go somewhere, but some of them, trust me, as a guy that spent a lot of time on the Appalachian Trail, go a long way before they get anywhere or they hit any roads. And You can go further and further and deeper and deeper in. So the big thing there, though, is the first thing you have to do when you're lost in a wilderness survival situation, stop, relax, gather your senses, get down to a sense of normalcy. This isn't that big a deal. I can deal with it. And that is the same thing you do in a disaster. Once, you know, if, there's, if, if things are flying and you've got to take cover because there's a tornado hitting the house, you do that. Once that's done... You to touched everybody in the house. Nobody's dead. Nobody needs to go to the ER, okay? <sighs> okay, let's just not panic. What are we going to do? Just Let's everybody chill. Just, just Let's just chill. Let's give it 60 seconds to be happy that everybody's okay. Breathe deeply. Sets our situation. Use the tools that we have available. That sense of normalcy will help you make good decisions. Now, what I want to kind of now, I said I would be doing through this whole show, and I really haven't done it intentionally yet, is I want to ask how many of you guys that say that you are experienced, well-prepared preppers, found holes in your lives today with just going through these things. I want you to think about things like, there's an ice storm, this is one of our recent scenarios, and you're just stuck at home for three weeks with no power. You know, if you live in the south, it's a hurricane. You're stuck at home for three weeks with no power. And if it's an ice storm, it's going to be freezing cold. And if it's a hurricane, once the hurricane passes, temperatures in the 90s, 100 degrees. Exactly what happened with Sandy. Sandy went through, destroyed everything, couple days of overcast, and then nasty, humid, horrid heat came in. That affected millions of people. This stuff is not arbitrary. It's not out of the question. It's not unreasonable to be prepared for. But how many holes can you find? Those of you that keep animals. Like I said, one of my holes recently we figured out is we just don't store enough chicken feed. We could call some birds and all, but you know, it depends on whether we really want to do that. Do I have time to do that? Is there something else going on? You know, so my wife's out today getting more chicken feed than we than we need. And we always have some in reserve, but we realize that we went through these big peaks and valleys with it. So we're trying to have less valleys, more of a plateau, a steady supply to make sure, at least for a couple weeks. You know, And usually it would be fine for a month. We usually have about a month when we're at peak. But we might go down to less than a week sometimes just because we don't feel like doing it. So you get the bulk up, and then you just resupply at normal intervals. If you have dogs, if you had to leave... They would go with you? Really? How? What would you take to support them? Do you have some food and water and stuff that your dogs need? Do you have a way to transport them? You, you see, this is just basic things. That even advanced people, I'm just going to stay put and I'm going to fight my battles. Well, you don't know that. You know, the, 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 one of the age old questions in prepping is do I bug in or do I bug out? And people have like a million opinions on them and most of them are wrong because there is one right answer. And that is in general, you stay put until such time that your safety is at greater risk by staying put. Whenever you cross that threshold, you leave. So if you were staring down the barrel of, of a hurricane and living on the coast and there's a high chance that it's going to hit right where you're at, and they're using words like you know, life-threatening event in their evacuation order, you get your hiney up and you leave. And people can tell you how tough they are, but no one's tough with a yield sign in their spleen. They're just not. And and, and so I I want the new person to realize that none of this is that hard, but I want the experienced person to realize you probably have all types of holes. And the good thing is, since you're not starting from square one, you can just go back and start plugging holes. And I also want you to start using minor inconveniences to test your preps. If the power goes out, and it's like a little blackout, and you know it's not a big deal, don't go fire the generator up. Unless it's really hot out, you know, and you want to make that cool room. I understand that. But, you know, just deal with it. Just, and and then sit down. Like, Dorothy and I had a really nasty power outage when we had our place in Arkansas remote, and... um It went down to 7 degrees, and that is actually what caused the outage. So many people jacked up their heater so high that the utility companies had some kind of catastrophic failure. It took them like a day to fix. So the power went out. When we sat listening, what's that conspiracy radio show uh, that's on late at night, Coast to Coast AM? So we we got our little transistor radio, and we fiddled around with it, and we got some news, and we found out what was going on, Eh, whatever, threw a couple more logs on the fire lit up the oil lamps, put the radio on, sat there talking to each other, set up our like beds on the floor so we could sleep next to the fireplace instead of in the other room be nice and warm. And uh, she got out a notepad, and we just said, if this was going to be a month like this, what don't we have that we need? And we were well-stocked at that point. We still came up with this list, and we just started working on it. It was easy, and it was fun. See, that's the thing. Prepping actually is fun if you're doing it right. If it's not fun, you're doing it wrong. That applies to so many things in life, but it it definitely applies to preparedness. Why wouldn't it be fun? I mean, if you really think about it, all you're doing is making sure that you can take care of yourself and others. If it's not fun, it should at least not be like hard. I mean, what kind of responsible adult doesn't do that? See, I actually think that not prepping for the basics is irresponsible behavior. I believe that the majority of Americans are irresponsible in at least this one area of their lives. And, you know, there's all these stigmas about survivalists or hoarding. Actually, prepping prevents hoarding. Hoarding is when everybody freaks out and gets as much as they can because they don't know when it's coming back. Prepping is where we slowly build up a supply so that when something happens, we don't take part in the hoarding. There's so many things that are easy to do. Here's a couple easy, easy ones. One of my favorite ones is just gas. If you have extra gas, you're in good shape. You're gonna buy gasoline anyway. You can if you have the funds, you go out and buy twelve gas cans, and you write January, February, March, April, May, all the way across. You get it twelve months, twelve gas cans. And each month fill one up. Or each month buy one can, fill it up. Put a little stabil in it, put it on a shelf. Put it on the floor in your, your shed, wherever you wherever you can safely store your gas. When you get around to January again, let's say you started in January, take your January can, open it up, pour it in your car or truck, put the empty can in your vehicle, go fill your car up, fill the can up, put it back at the beginning of the line. In February, do it again. In March, do it again. In April, do it again. Just like that. You'll always have 60 gallons of reserve gas. The reality is you haven't spent a dime more in total than you were going to spend anyway except on the cans. Now you can run your generator, you can run your car. When everybody's panicked and sitting in line at the gas station for some critical crisis, you're just not there. That's one thing you just never have to worry about ever again. But if the zombies march and the end of the world comes, you'll need more than 60, whatever, okay? You're going to need 60 before you get to 600 anyway. So you might as well do that. There's also, it's called Double or Dual Survivor, something like Double Survival or something like that on YouTube. A guy has a video called How to Fix a Gas Can. I'll put it in today's show notes. It's fabulous because modern gas cans suck. They've been ruined, and this guy has really simple things you can do to make a modern gas can function like the gas cans we all grew up with in the 1980s and 90s. But I invite you, if you're experienced, to start auditing your preps start examining your preps, to start determining what your readiness is. And if you're not prepared at all, to start taking basic steps, to just sit down. Start with food. It's so easy, there's no reason not to do it. Start with food and water. These are your first steps. Again, get a notebook, put it on your countertop, write down everything your family eats for the next couple weeks, put stars next to everything that stores, start buying two instead of one, and build a deep pantry. If you don't have enough room in your pantry to do this, Get some bins and come up with simple inventory management. If you drink sodas or anything that comes in heavy plastic food-grade containers, save them, fill them with water, and store some water. Okay, it, That costs nothing. I'm sure you pay for water if you're on city water, but it's not much. If you don't do that, I guarantee you, you know somebody that drinks sodas or something like that, have them save their bottles for you. If you don't want to tell them what you're doing because you're embarrassed that you're actually responsible Fine, tell them it's for some kind of recycling or kids' project or something. You get a couple of people doing it from you, for you. Before you know, you have a couple hundred gallons of water stored. If you start with those two things, let me tell you what's going to happen. A couple months into it, you're going to realize, hey, if something goes wrong, that's taken care of. And it's going to feel really good. You're actually going to feel like what you've become, a responsible adult that takes care of yourself and the people you care about. And then you're going to say to yourself, yeah, an energy thing. Huh? Power goes out and you'll put together your, your blackout kit. That's something you can do right away, by the way. Most people have flashlights, batteries, candles, stuff. Just get a bag or a box and just put a grouping of it together in one place and put it somewhere where you know where it is and get a couple uh, emergency nightlight style lights so you can get to it if it goes out in the dark. You know, if you have a fireplace and you've never used it before, learn how it works. Lighting a fire is not as easy as you might think it would be. And for those of you that have some wood put up, make sure it's covered, or it might be not worth shit when you need it most, like when the power's out and it's soaking wet. Huh? And if you're not a person that generally uses your fireplace, but it's part of your backup plan, understand, first of all, it's not very efficient. Secondly, it is better than nothing, and it does actually work pretty decent. And number three, since you don't routinely light fires to make your life easier, go out and get some of the... Uh, the ones that you just, like the fire logs, the small ones, though, that are just there, you put it in, you burn it. Oh, look, it's pretty. It doesn't throw much heat because if you get one of those and stick it in there, put some wood around it, and light it, you'll get a fire. I'd prefer you learn how to actually use kindling and start a fire. But just for stopgap measure, we're coming up on winter, do that. If you really want your fireplace to be efficient, look at inserts. Uh, they make your fireplace into much something much closer to a stove as far as providing heat. Really look into a generator powerful enough to run a small air conditioner and creating one room as a comfort room for so many reasons. For for health and safety, for, for just living conditions, these are easy things to do. Um, check out our shows on battery banks and generators. I'll put links to those with Stephen Harris. Those are great. Consider building a battery bank. If you want to build some great battery banks, Steve has some awesome DVDs you can learn from. I'll put a link to his site. I don't, I don't get anything for selling that stuff, guys. It's just, it's really, it's a great resource. The battery bank videos are actually my idea that I took to Steve and said, why don't you develop this? Um, because I knew there was, a, there was a place for it and a need for it, and I just didn't have time to do it. So I just kind of gave him the idea and gave him some advice, and he ran with it and did more than I ever expected. So that's that's a great thing to do, too. Build up some basic security. It's the responsible thing to do. If you think prepping is neurotic or paranoid or something like that, all you're doing is giving mislabels to what we would call, again, responsible behavior. Your children, your spouse, they look to you to make sure that they have what they need. And you probably do a great job of providing that on a day-to-day basis. But you have to think about when it's not a day-to-day basis. How do I do it then? And even if you're alone, if you're going to be a responsible member of society, if you're looking out for yourself, someone else doesn't have to do it for you. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. food these days you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay I guess we